take your Bibles with me this morning, open them to our study of the book of Romans. I know that we have just begun chapter 3, and it's, it's a rather, frankly, a difficult section of Scripture for us to be in, mostly because it's, it's like the laser beam, if you will, a, a cutting laser. The light of God's truth is really shining so brightly upon us as we As we look at the words from this text, it's exposing all the realities concerning the heart of man. And the implication is concerning even our own hearts. As I was doing some reading this week in my study of this passage, it's a regular practice of mine to to really begin to return to the beginning of a book that I am studying and And just read from the start. And I do that from time to time just to gain a fresh look at the intent of what the author is writing. He has a point that he's trying to make. That the Spirit has led him to write these these very words that he is giving to us. And so as I was going through that exercise this week, I was struck with the words all the way back in the first verse. Go back to chapter 1 just for a moment. The words which simply say, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. As I begin to meditate upon those words, I begin to understand that without those words, without the implication of those words in our own very lives, None of what we have been studying in the book of Romans, or any other book, frankly, really has any meaning. It isn't, of course, the word Paul that struck me, although we could spend a lot of time just studying Paul and learn a lot about his life because he is a great example to us. But rather, it is the impacting words, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. A bondservant of Christ Jesus. Of course, Paul is describing himself. He's describing himself particularly in relationship to Jesus Christ, to his Savior. He described himself first and foremost as a willing slave of Christ. There's implications to that. He served Christ. He loved Christ, not because he had to, but because Christ had first served and loved him. And so I began to think about that and ask myself this question in light of these words. And it's a question that each one of us, I think, must ponder. Because not only... Does it have everything to do with our heart attitude when we gather to worship as God's people? Not only does it have everything to do with that reality as we are here as a body and individually parts of that body, but also I believe it has impact upon the whole idea that we have begun to to uncover or think about from our study last week in chapter 3, this whole idea of club Christianity that Paul is addressing 
with his Jewish brothers and his Jewish sisters in chapter 3. And the question I want us to begin to ask this morning is this. Am I a bond servant of Christ Jesus? Am I a bond servant of Christ Jesus? Not am I a bond servant of Christ Jesus in the sense that am I saved? In other words, am I saved or not? Some of us probably should ask ourselves that question because I know in a group this size there's some here, I'm sure, who do not know Jesus Christ. But but what I'm asking of us as those who claim Christ is, am I a bondservant of Christ Jesus in the practice of my Christian life? Not in words, but in practice. Not on the surface, but in the real realities of how I live my life out. Now, some of us may not think that's a very significant question, because we might quickly answer, of course, I'm a Christian. And since I'm a Christian, of course I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But I wonder if we truly realize that those very words imply ownership. Ownership. In other words, they imply that Christ is the owner of us as Christians, individually. So let's ask that question this way. Does Christ own me? Does Christ own me? The word own carries with it some very different implications. You and I, as people, we own a lot of different things, different items. We have cars. We have homes. We have all kinds of possessions. They are ours to do with what we wish. If you own a car, you can take your car and you can push it off a cliff and no one can truly stop you from pushing it off that cliff unless you are breaking some kind of law. But for all intents and purposes, because you own it, you can do with it what you wish. So, does Christ own you? That means, do we live in such a way that Christ can do with us whatever He wishes? Whatever He wants. Let me just give us a few areas that we may, may not think about too often. Does God own, does Christ own your physical body? I mean, let's take the implication down and down to life. Does Christ own your physical body? If he chooses to allow sickness to invade your physical, mortal body, is it okay simply because he owns you? Is it okay? What about your thoughts? What about your mind? Does Christ own your mind, the things that you allow into your mind to dwell on? Are those the things that are from the ownership of the one who owns you? Are they the things of this earth or are they the things above? The not-so-worldly things. Does Christ own your mind? What about your aspirations? Some of you young people have great aspirations. 
talking about your dreams for life. You see, you may be planning your way, but is it God who is directing your steps? The dreams you have for life, are they yours or are they God's? What about that? What about your aspirations for the years to come or the next year or the next month? Does he own those? I mean, if it's ownership, it's the issue. He ought to. What about your relationships? The interactions with other people that you have in your family, in your workplace, in your friendships. Can God do what He wills in that area of your life? Are you a bondservant of Christ Jesus there? What about your possessions? Who's the owner? You? Christ Jesus. Let me meddle a little more. Does God own your time? We talk about this often. Sometimes we think about it in the church, like, oh, your time. And we, we talk about it in these grand fashions. Does God own your time? That means, does He own your schedule? You see, it gets very easy for us to go about life and we plan our own day. And really what we're doing is we believe we're planning our day, but in reality we seemingly are planning His day when it is us who needs to submit to His plan for our day. You see, if we are true Christians, He owns us. and We do not own Him. So the question is, does God own us in our practical lives as we say he does in our verbal lives? Can we honestly echo the words of Job? Job Job 13, 15, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. Though he slay me, I will trust him. See, that's to be the heart of every true Christian. It's the willingness to say to our Lord and Master, do whatever you will do with my life, I will trust you. Whatever you want to do, I will trust you. If you must inflict my physical body with pain, if you must inflict me with sickness and and disease, being satisfied in you is enough for me. If you must adjust the course of my life so that my life is not my plans that are followed but yours, so be it. I'm okay with that, Lord, because you own me. If my dreams are not yours and my aspirations for life are not yours, then let mine fade into oblivion so that yours are the ones that I follow. must remove my possessions so that I will depend more deeply on you, so be it. Whatever it is you must do with me, go ahead and do it, Lord. And even if you have to slay me, I will trust in you. That, beloved, is what Paul is saying in this epistle. Jesus Christ must be both Savior and owner, or he is nothing at all. 
holding on to some ritualistic reality, maintaining some outward ceremony, doing nothing but those things will do nothing to secure you in the kingdom of heaven. Salvation comes through faith in only one person. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ, who is both Savior and owner to those who believe. Nothing else works. There is no other road that will lead you to glory. There is no other road to heaven. And the inevitable reality is that as soon as that truth and reality is proclaimed, as soon as that is stated, and it is stated that all men are guilty before God without Jesus Christ, even those who are holding to a religious, moral system of activity as their means for salvation, as soon as it's stated, accusations begin to come against it. Statements are made that surely that cannot be true. And Paul begins to answer those challenges. And he begins it in chapter 3. Why? Because from the Jew's perspective, from his own heritage and the people of his heritage, from their perspective, because they were God's specially chosen people, because God, through Abraham, had given them a blessing and said, you are the people of God. They were already, in their minds, exempt from God's wrath. God would not judge them. They were automatically in God's family since because they believed their heritage secured them. And so, as we saw last Lord's Day when we were studying chapter 3, the first objection came. If you say that we, the Jews, are as guilty as the rest, then what advantage do we have in being a Jew? Chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage is that? What benefit is the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. What, What does all that mean then if it doesn't do us any good before a holy God? And Paul answers that they had a great advantage in being a Jew. In fact, the ultimate thing that they received was the Word of God. You saw that in verse 2. It's great in every respect that you were a Jew by your very heritage, that you were the chosen people of God, because God gave you His very Word, the oracles of God. That's, That's the very words of God that God gave, not somebody else. You want a verse for divine inspiration of the Scriptures, there it is very oracles of God. There's a great and wonderful advantage to having God's written word. In it, we learn about salvation. In it, we learn that salvation comes through Jesus Christ, that all men are guilty in need of a Savior, and it's available to all who will truly repent and believe. It isn't just an intellectual assent to facts. There is an agreement with God as to your condition, a confession that must happen before God. And through that repentance, God grants a repentance to man. Man, Repentance is not a man-made thing. Repentance is a gift from God. What God requires, God grants. 
And God grants repentance and God grants faith. The Jews were the first to see that as a privilege because that's what the Word of God stated all through the Old Testament. With great privilege comes great responsibility to follow what it says, to obey what God has said, but most refused. Many didn't repent. Many did not believe. And so the next objection is heard. Paul is anticipating their next argument. These are... These are not objections that Paul is hearing personally. Maybe he has heard them personally, and maybe he even waged them himself personally, being a Jew before he got saved and, and, and one of the highest level. But Paul's anticipating these kinds of arguments. And so he gives this second argument in verses 3 and 4. Notice what he says. What then? If some didn't believe... Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you might be justified in your words and might prevail when you are judged. So here is their argument. Here's the argument. Listen, Paul. Listen. If what you are saying is true about us, that we are as guilty as the rest of humanity, that we being religious people, that we being Jews, that we being moral people, let's put it in our day, if, if, if a morally good person compared to the, the non-moral, if you will, or the person who isn't at their level of morality is worse off or in the same place, if you say we're as guilty as the rest, then how can you say that we are advantaged because we are Jews or because we have circumcision or because we have the Word of God, and even more so, wouldn't that make the promises of God to be false? Didn't God promise to us? See, the Jew, any Jew knew the Old Testament promises. They knew what God had promised to them. They also knew that they were made... Those promises were made to the nation of Israel and not to an individual person alone. Even though God made a promise to Abraham, who was the patriarch of Israel, those promises were said that blessings would be to your descendants, all the people. One commentator put it this way, quote, God had never promised that any individual Jew, no matter how pure his physical lineage was from Abraham, or from any of the other great saints of the Old Testament, no one could claim security in God's promises apart from repentance and personal faith in God, resulting in obedience from the heart, unquote. In other words, the Old Testament taught the reality of faith, repentance and faith, repentance and obedience to the things of God. The Old Testament, there was no security before God without be without God being both Savior and owner of your life. Without Christ being Lord and Savior. In fact, the fulfillment of God's promise has always been in line with that condition. You say, how so? Well, listen to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. That's repentance. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You see? Repentance and belief. Trusting in what God would do. God's promise of salvation has always been conditioned upon that repentance and faith. Never on religious activity. Never upon your heritage. Never upon how you grew up. Whether you grew up in a Christian home. Whether you belong to some church. Whether you carry your Bible around. Keep it in your car. Hold on to it all the time. Have your, all your important papers tucked into it. Whatever you do, none of that will help you. It's never on the basis of those kinds of things. And so the Jewish argument was that just because God promised it, therefore we all are going to be saved. It's like somebody saying today, since Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, and since all people are lost, therefore it must be that all people are saved. No, not true. Their claim is, in other words, if it doesn't take place, then God must be unfaithful to that. Since Jesus said, if he's God, I came to seek and to save that which was lost, and since everybody's lost, if everybody's lost, and I came to seek those, I'm going to save everybody. It's as if God, they're saying, if God doesn't save everybody, then God's promise is nullified. No. The issue here isn't what lies in the promise. The issue here is in the response to the promise. No matter how men and women respond to the promise, it never nullifies the promise. In other words, God is true no matter how men may choose to sin. This is Paul's point. They're saying, look, if some didn't believe, as you say, just because some didn't believe, their unbelief doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. In other words, their unbelief doesn't disavow the promise, does it? I mean, the promise is for us all. Just because they don't believe, certainly God's promise isn't gone away. Paul says, right, may it never be. No, absolutely not. Listen, it doesn't matter. God is true no matter if every man's a liar. God's promise isn't nullified just because man doesn't believe it. heard people say before, I don't believe the Bible is God's Word. <gasps> that must mean it's not God's Word. Nope. doesn't matter whether you believe it's God's Word or not. That doesn't nullify the reality of what it is. You can say that salvation is some other way. That doesn't make it so. God has said salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. And if you don't believe that, there's only one reality that's happened, whether you believe that or not. That's why I've said in the past the most liberal bumper sticker I've ever seen in the world is, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's it. You go, wait a minute, isn't that what you just said? No. Because it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God said it, that's it. Whether you believe it or not has no bearing other than on you. 
doesn't have a bearing on the promise. That's what Paul's saying. God's promise isn't nullified. The national salvation of Israel is as sure and irrevocable as any promise ever made by God. God made the promise. There are some things God cannot do, and one of the things God cannot do is break a promise. But in that promise, it in no way ensures individual certainty just because one is a Jew. This is what they were mistaking. It was believed that God's unconditional promise to the nation was for universal application of every individual Jew of all time. Paul said, no, that's that's not the promise, folks. They were seeing it as a universal salvation, and yet that was never intended in God's promise. In fact, if salvation were universal, then Paul's accusers would be right to say that God is being unfaithful. Why? Because he would be breaking his promise. And Paul says, may it never be. There's no way God could ever do that. God could never be unfaithful. It's impossible. May it never be. There's no stronger of a negative in the original language than that very statement right there. May Ginnikah. There's no stronger statement ever made. May it never be. In other words, God being unfaithful, that is absolutely impossible. It doesn't matter how many people don't believe. It doesn't matter how many people say God is untrue. No, God is going to be found true even if every man is found a liar. Why? Because it's written that he's going to be justified in his words even when he is judged. Even when somebody judges God is wrong, his words are going to be justified. Even if every human that ever lived said that God was unfaithful, that would not make it so. God would always be found faithful. Every man would always be found to be a liar. God is always true. He's always faithful to his promise, even if no one ever obeys. And so Paul quotes from Psalm 51. And you see the Old Testament there in verse 4. That's Psalm 51. It's the words of David. I love it how Paul does that. Paul always goes to the ones that the Jews held in the highest esteem. He quotes David. In chapter 4, you're going to notice he uses Abraham as an illustration to them because they're not going to argue with that. This is the, the, the most highly esteemed king that ever was over the nation of Israel. Paul is using him, and Paul, they knew what David did with Bathsheba. They knew, and yet these are David's words. You might be justified in your words and might prevail when you are judged. David is saying to God in Psalm 51 as he confesses his sin after Nathan confronts him, he's saying, God, you are right. Let no one say of you in your punishment of me that you are wrong. That's what Paul's quoting. 
Even David knew this reality about God, that God was never unfaithful in his promise to David, and yet God even punished David. Very important for us to remember that. God was never unfaithful. God is always right in his justice. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, you you say that you don't have an advantage. You have a great advantage. You were given the words of God. You say, well, if that's true and yet we are guilty, then God must be unfaithful because he must not be keeping his promise because his promise is universal to all of us. And Paul's saying, oh, no, 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 you see that totally wrong. His promise does not work like that. God would never be unfaithful to his promise. You cannot level that claim at God. Notice what David said of God's judgment of him. So accusation number one is that. What benefit is our heritage? Great in every degree. Well, if that's true, then God must be unfaithful then. That's accusation number two. And then the next objection comes. Oh, really? Okay, Paul. Well, you say that we are advantaged just because we're Jews. But that doesn't mean that we are secure before God. That's your implication, Paul. We're Jews, but we have no security before God. We're just as guilty as everybody else. You say that even though God made a promise to our people, that doesn't secure us before him. Well, really, Paul? Okay, here's our next answer to you. But if our righteousness, verse 5 through 8, if our righteousness, if our unrighteousness then demonstrates his righteousness, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Paul says, of course, I'm speaking in human terms. No, may it never be, for otherwise, how will he judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? See, they were accusing Paul of lying about God. And Paul brings himself into this now. Why not say, as we are, slanderous, as we are slanderously reported, as, and as some affirm that we say, why not say, let us do evil that good may come? See, the base argument is this. If being and doing evil, or say it in our own language, if doing sinful things makes God's righteousness shine that much brighter, then we'll just be that much more evil so that God looks that much more good. Or at least that's what you're implying, Paul. argument's irrational, isn't it? It really defies human logic in every way, in many ways. It's the epitome of the deceitfulness of sin, which is why Paul gets into that in detail in chapter 6 when he says, what, are we going to sin that grace might abound? No. Why do they say this? Because this is what sin does. Sin makes man stupid. Sin makes us irrational. We can't even think right. Our thoughts are not right. Our actions are not right. And this is exactly what's happening here in verses 5 through 8. They are saying, listen, if we are God's people, God chose us. If we're his people and he made promises to us, 
and we have all of the advantages that you say that we have, but you say that we are still as guilty as the rest, then either God is unfaithful to his promise or our sinful behavior is okay because it just makes God look all that much better. Seems like it makes a whole lot of sense in human terms. That's why Paul says that. But human logic is flawed. Because it always justifies itself. And so Paul says again, in that strong negative way in verse 6, may it never be. It can never be that way. In other words, that's absolutely insane. That's absolutely impossible. If that were true, if it were true what you're saying and what you're accusing, verse 6, then how is God going to judge the world? You see, they can't answer that question because the Jews knew that that God is a perfect God. He has no flaws. And so to even imply that is to imply that God is flawed. And if God is flawed, how's God going to judge anybody? He's just like everybody else. And all they had to do was to recount their history and see that God always judged righteously, even in their history. Always. God was never, no one could ever level the accusation at God that God treated the Jews in some kind of way that was unrighteous. God was always righteously judging, even to the point of extending mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And yet Paul, in his teaching, everywhere he went by the Jews, he's being accused of teaching these kinds of things. He's being accused of teaching this reality of the gospel, that all people are guilty before God. Your externals will not save you. It's an internal reality that must express itself in an external way. The external activities do nothing to secure your salvation before God. And yet Paul is being accused of saying that God must be unfaithful if he's not going to save the Jews. That's why he says in verse 7 or 8, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, then why am I still being judged as a sinner? In other words, if, if what you're saying is true, why are you why are you accusing me then if that's the case? If, if the accusation against me is what you say, and if that is true, then why am I being judged as some wicked person if God's just being seen in a greater light like you're assuming here? Why not just say, let us do evil that good might come? see, his critics had accused him of teaching that the more wicked a person was, the more it glorified God. That's what they were teaching. And Paul takes that argument and turns it right back in their face. Sin glorifies God. This is what they're saying. Then sin away. That was the accusation against Paul. If sin glorifies God, then go ahead and sin all you want. It's always been one of the most visible characteristics of man's fallen nature. Rationalizing your sin. That's what we do. We rationalize it. Must be okay. I mean, after all, God is a God of grace. You ever say that to yourself in your own heart? 
Oh, don't worry about it. It's just a small thing. Yeah, it's not a big thing. It's just a small thing. You ever do that? Surely. We rationalize our sin. We're well practiced at giving good reasons for why we sin. Paul says God's not fooled. God's not fooled at that. The condemnation that comes is just. He returns to that idea. God is a just God. God is always just. In every way, He's just. And He will always be just. And your sin and your desire for sinfulness will only bring greater condemnation. Rationalization is a classic characteristic of club Christianity. Rationalizing our sin, giving excuses for it, why I did it, oh, but God really isn't going to care about this, oh, it's not such a big deal. That is a classic example. That is a classic tenant of club Christianity. This is why in the Catholic Church you go every week and just confess to the priest because he'll tell you 30 things you get to do in order to be absolved. And after that's done, just go on living how you want because you're going to go back next week anyway. It's ridiculous. Sin all you want because after all, God's forgiveness is seen in greater light if I just sin in a heinous way. The Jews club Christians. They were part of the club, holding on to their club card, and yet none of the benefits were them. They relied upon association. They held to religious activity. They held to tradition rather than on repentance and faith. For the Jew, God was a Savior wasn't the owner. I think it's the same today. It's the same today. Nothing's new under the sun. To be a true Christian, you cannot rely on club Christianity. You cannot have a club mentality. If you claim to know Jesus Christ, but you are continually unrepentant in your sinfulness, it's no big deal better wonder whether you're truly saved. If your life shows no reality to the fact that you are turning from sin, embracing obedience to Christ, then you better wonder whether you're saved. If you're okay with just going on sinning and it's no big deal, let the water run off my back. After all, God is a forgiving God and I'm in Christ. Everything's good and you're okay with that mentality. It doesn't even bother your conscience. You better wonder. a Christian is to be a bondservant of Christ. It's to be under His ownership. It's to have a genuine desire to serve Him. So let me ask the question again as we just close our thoughts down. 
What kind of Christianity is yours? What kind is it? Is it the kind like the moralistic Jew of Paul's day? Is that the kind of Christianity you have? The kind that relies upon the external promise of God but ignores your responsibility to walk by faith? The responsibility of His ownership over you? We're not not talking about struggling here in the Christian life, the war of battling over the things of the flesh. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about your desire and your direction. You see, if it's, if it's about the externals only and you rest yourself in that because you're doing A, B, C, D, you must be saved. Listen, that's club Christianity. But if you're true, if you're a true Christian, based upon faith alone in Christ alone because of grace alone, which, by the way, produces, because of the Spirit of God, produces in you a desire to practice obedience. If that's yours, then you can rest in the fact that Christ is truly the owner of you. You have a desire to love and obey Him because He first loved you. You know what I want us to do this morning as we just end our time is just spend a moment right now in your own heart before the Lord. Maybe you've taken your place. You haven't gone before in your own mind, your own heart. Allow, allow God, allow His Word to just examine you, to be that light shining upon your heart and see if there be any wicked way in you. And if God, by His Spirit, is impressing that upon your heart, confess that before Him. Agree with His assessment of it. Repent of it. Be restored to Christ today. Don't don't leave here with that club card in your pocket yet. Thinking that, yeah, everything's fine because I'm part of the club. Don't do that. Bow with me for just a time of quiet reflection for a moment. Lord, sometimes the quiet seems awkward to us. Just sitting before you in our heart, wanting something to happen. Sometimes we just need to sit and be quiet before you. With your word open, our minds focused on what you said, and allow it to open us and uncover us, expose us to you. Each one of us are here. We know things about ourselves that no one else knows, but you do. Wherever we've been, whatever we've thought, 
in the secret places you have seen us, you were there. You watched us. Help us, Lord. Help us to confess those things. To turn from them. If we be not saved, Lord, show us Christ that we might embrace Him. Stop relying on ourselves, the external activity of our life. Hoping that because we grew up in a certain home or because we seem religious, that we're going to be okay. When we may not know Christ at all. Lord, and for those who do know Christ, who have rationalized sin in the smallest of ways, cause us to know that. Open the blind spots. Challenge us in those things. By the power of your Spirit, cause us to turn from it. To not just acquiesce, but to actually turn and walk new. Your Word tells us that when we know Jesus Christ, not only are we new, but all things are new. We think differently. Speak differently. We walk differently. Carry our lives in such a way that would be an honor and a desire to you because that's all we want. Because we know that you own us. We pray this morning that that would be the desire of our heart. Thank you for your word. For the sharpness of it penetrate down to the thoughts and intentions of our very hearts. Cause us to be glorying children of you, that your glory would be seen in us because of a Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.